0: Okay, it was good to see everybody. How's everybody doing? Good, all right, good. Uh, Well, let's go ahead and let's pray, and then we'll spend a little bit of time in the Word together. Father, we thank you so very much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We thank you for... uh, every Sunday but we thank you for this Sunday and we thank you for this opportunity we have to once again think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to realize that our salvation was purchased on the cross but we know that that purchase is uh, secure eternally because of the resurrection and so I pray father that as we look at this text this morning that your spirit would be moving in our hearts causing us to see Christ exalt Christ to worship Christ would cause us to see ourselves, that you would, by the power of your spirit, be working in our hearts, making us the type of witness that you want us to be in this community at this time. We just thank you for everything you've given us in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, I'm not a very good cook. If you've ever had me cook for you, you probably know that's the case. I am not good at it. So I I one day thought, you know what? I'm going to work on this. I'm going to take a master class cooking class from Gordon Ramsay through Amazon Prime. And it was a disaster. I followed his instructions and burnt the toast. But in my defense, it's really difficult to work a toaster. There's... Buttons and knobs, one button and one knob. So I took careful notes. I, I, I took a piece of paper and a pen, and I jotted down, and I called Domino's, and they delivered pizza, and it was one of the best meals we had as a family in the past year. No, uh, I, I took the class, uh, and I learned how to make breakfast, which was a big achievement for me, and it, it, was, it was good. Nobody else ate the food because they were concerned that I cooked it. But I followed the instructions and I thought it, it's pretty good. And I, I realized the importance of an example, right? It's good to have an example and somebody kind of show you and walk through, you know, this is what you do. And you do this, this, and you add this then and you do that, this. It turned out great. The same thing happens with us as Christians in our example as a witness to our community. Sometimes we just need somebody to show us what to do. Sometimes we need an example of what that witness looks like, what that witness sounds like. And so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. During this time from now until the, to the resurrection starting in last week, uh, we started our resurrection series uh, You know, every year I try to do this, take off a couple Sundays from our normal exposition and kind of just talk about the birth of Christ. And then we also talk about the resurrection of Christ. And this year, one of the things that the Lord's really laid on my heart is how we talk about the resurrection to those around us. So this isn't necessarily going to be so much about the content and and, and, and an apologetic or a polemic on the, the resurrection. This is... How do we talk about the resurrection? How, what does that evangelistic witness look like? And what's the example? And so that's what we're going to look at. And so last week we looked at the empowered witness. So our witness and our community first must be empowered. And we talked about how it is vitally important that if we are going to talk about the resurrection and we're going to be an effective witness to our community, we must be walking by the power of the Spirit. We must be filled with the Spirit. That, that's an important, important thing. And that, that has to be always at our forefront, always walking by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to look at the example of Peter as he gives his first sermon. Now, I'm just going to say, at the, starting off, this is not going to be a normal exposition for me. Because if I was doing a normal exposition... Peter's sermon would take me at least two years. So uh, we're going to just go through this quickly. There's probably going to be some things that you hope I comment on and I might skip over something. And you'll just have to forgive me because the purpose is to show us an example of what this looks like. Okay, An example of a witness. And we're going to look at Peter. We are going to make some comments, but it's not going to be as in-depth as we're used to. One of the other things you might ask is, why are we looking at Peter as an example? Isn't this guy an apostle? What, what can Peter teach us here in Astoria? It seems like this is a world apart from the world that we live in. But I want to remind you a couple things of Peter. First of all, remember, Peter was a commercial fisherman. We know about that, right? That's something that happens here, right? Commercial fisherman. That's what he was. He was a, confer- he was a commercial fisherman. He worked with his hands. Nothing in the text ever indicates that Peter had any formal education, any degree. He didn't go to any Bible college unless you consider spending three years with Jesus Bible College, which I might, but really no formal education, right? One of the other things, too, is Peter was married. He had a family. This was a family man. So here's somebody who was a commercial fisherman, doesn't necessarily have the, the pedigree of the the highest schools in, in Israel. He was a family man. He was concerned about his family and all of that. Also, I would say this out of all the apostles, I consider Peter, this is me, I consider Peter to be the most American out of all of them. There's stuff that he does that I go, that's exactly what an American would do. Yep, we would, when he says the stuff he goes, I, I, yep, that's us as Americans. Yep. Interestingly enough, who's he talking to? He's talking to a group of Jews. Yes, and a lot of them have traveled to Jerusalem. They're not from Jerusalem. So he's talking to a large group of people that are coming in for a short time and then leaving. Well, that sounds a lot like our town, doesn't it? Here's something else that's kind of interesting. He's addressing a group of people who are entrenched in human traditions. And remember, these people... These very same people are also the same people that yelled, crucify Christ. They're not pro-Jesus. This is not a pro-Jesus crowd. It's not like he's talking to a church that's already been established. These people just killed Jesus a short time ago. And now Peter is talking in a culture of people who are entrenched in human traditions that just killed Jesus. They, they, They are persecutors. Well, that sounds like our culture, doesn't it? whole bunch of people following human traditions, and they're not necessarily pro-Jesus. So it seems to me that this is a great example for us of how do we talk to people like this. So let's look at Peter's example here. I want to show you three things about Peter's example in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. I just want to try to show you three things this morning. First thing that we're going to look at as we're going to look at Peter as he, as he explains and he tries to persuade people to believe in Jesus by looking at promises that are found in God's word. So, so he, he talks about promises, the promises that are found in God's word. Here's the promises. Second thing, he's going to look at the life of Christ and offer proofs. God attested the validity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, by proofs, by certain proofs. And then lastly, what we're going to see is that he tries to explain and persuade these people to believe in Jesus through God's messianic portrayal. God has talked about the Messiah for a long time. And we can look back at the Old Testament and go, hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus was even born. There's this detailed description of what he would look like. That's what he uses. That's what he talks about. It starts with a passage and it ends with a passage. The whole bunch of Jesus in the middle. That's it. It's a Bible Jesus sandwich. That is his message, right? Scripture, Jesus, scripture. That, that's what he talks about. We could do that, right? You could talk about Jesus dying on the cross, right? You could talk about Jesus raising from the dead, and when somebody goes, well, what's the proof? Well, look at what the scriptures say. Look at these signs. Look at what is said in the Old Testament. You might not know them off the top of your head, but You could do exactly what Peter did. He was a believer who was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? He talked about Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. That's all it takes. We're not talking about reinventing the wheel. We're not talking about how do we what's the right way to to, to phrase the, the, the message? It's Jesus. That's the message. You don't have to learn any new language. You don't have to learn any deep theological words. You don't even have to use the word hypostatic union. You can if you want, but you don't have to. You could just simply go to people saying, yeah, Jesus changed my life. He died on the cross for my sins, was buried, and rose again. I believed in him, and my life has changed. So can yours. That's it. We're not talking about a huge, deep message that requires Latin or Greek. And I think Peter is a great example of showing us that. So let's first look at Peter's sermon here in verse 14. And let's look at how he's persuading people to believe in Jesus through promises. Now remember, we left off last week where the, the gift of tongues were coming and there were people that were perplexed. They said, what, what is happening? Why, what is this thing that's happening? There's This wind and these people are speaking in languages. They're Galileans. What's going on? Other people were making fun of them, saying, oh, they're drunk. Not, not saying that this is how they were acting. They weren't acting inebriated. They're just mocking, and this is what mockers do. They don't care about the facts. They're just trying to make fun of. So notice, verse 14, it says, but Peter standing with the eleven. Now, if we were doing a really in-depth uh, exposition here, we might stop and go, this same Peter that denied Jesus three times? The same Peter and the same eleven that were hiding in the upper room, right? Scared of their own shadow, not wanting to talk about Jesus. Now all of a sudden, because of this empowerment of the Holy Spirit, what's he doing? He's standing. With who? With the eleven. Notice that when we walk by the power of the Spirit, yes, there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, And self-control. Self-control helps us against fear. Love for one another helps us with fear. I'm sure he was scared talking to all these people. I'm sure there was was still that thing in the back of his mind. These people just killed Jesus. But when we're controlled by the Spirit and the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. Guess what that's going to look like? It's going to look like us standing up when the opportunity presents itself. And speaking the truth of God's word with boldness and clarity. Right? So notice what he does. Peter stands up, lifts up his voice, and he addresses them. He says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you. And give your ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. It's only 9 a.m. Uh, kind of an interesting argument of why they're not drunk. It's so early. I guess the idea would be you would have to be a serious drunk to be drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning. And clearly these people are not that, right? But notice what he does. He kind of uses this as a, as a, as a springboard to, to go into, the, into what he really is talking about. And, and in one way, he kind of addresses those who were mocking, and he also answers those people who are asking the question, what's going on? What's happening? So notice what he says. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, I'm just going to say this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on what Joel says here in Joel 2. You want to talk about a hornet's nest of interpretations? I am sure. I am positive. I'm telling you the truth. That if there are two theologians in a room and they're talking about this text, there are ten interpretations of this, right? It, it, this is a very interesting thing that Peter does, and what I think Peter does here by quoting Joel chapter two is, I think he's saying, "Look, this is this is ushering in something new." Something new that hasn't been experienced before. God talked about the coming of the Spirit. And and, and this would come and this would would happen during the age of the Messiah. And I think that what what Peter's doing is he's not saying that the entirety of Joel chapter 2 is fulfilled here on the day of Pentecost. But whatever's happening is inaugurated. And so there's aspects of Joel chapter 2 that are happening in front of you. Not all the aspects are being fulfilled. Some of those aspects will be fulfilled later. They have to. They didn't happen at that time. But this is the beginning of that thing that Joel's talking about in Joel chapter 2. This is the beginning. It It will be fulfilled later. And so that's what I think he's doing. He's starting with God's word and the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit because of the Messiah. He starts with the promise of God. That's what I think he does here. And so just notice what he says here in verse 17. It says, in the last days it shall be. By the way, I think we're in the last days now. According to the scriptures, the last days we could also call the time of the Messiah. Okay, uh, We normally, when we think of last days, we think of the rapture and the tribulation. Those are the end days. True, but realize that there's going to be a thousand years after that. So they're not the end-end days. There's still going to be time after that. So... We're living in the time of the Messiah in the end days right now. So, there you go. Congratulations. You've made it to the end days. No, we're in the last time. So, I think this is what what, what Joel's talking about here. And and notice what it says here. It says, and I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is one of the reasons why I don't think it's literally fulfilled here at the day of Pentecost. Because it says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Only a couple people got the Holy Spirit at this point, right? So... But I think what he's saying, he's saying, look, this is the coming of the Spirit. This was talked about in the Old Testament. This is happening. This is that promise. Remember, we're all waiting for the time of the Messiah. It's here, friends. It's right now. And notice, I will pour out my Spirit on all the flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Notice that based off of the Holy Spirit, notice all the things that are happening. And it says, even on the male servants and on the female servants, in those days, in the last time, what will happen? I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness. And the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. And the great and magnificent day. Friends, I think that this day is coming. I don't think we will see it. This church, we teach that the church will be removed before the tribulation. And I know that there are many people who write books called the Blood Moons and the Harbinger. And they sound really scary. And, and, and. Trust me, friends, when this is fulfilled, the whole world will know it. It's not like you're going to have to sit there and guess, is this the blood moon or is this a harbinger? Nope, there will be no guessing, right? We know from the book of Revelation, whenever this stuff happens, people will call down to the mountain and say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. This will be fully known. This is not what some of those write in the book about the blood moons and the harbingers. No, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about this this event in the future. But I don't think that Peter necessarily focuses on, on this, on the coming doom, though it is important to remember that he does quote the entire passage, and this will be in the mind of the people as they're listening. But there is one thing that, notice the next verse, and this is a really important thing, It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So think about this. Peter, he starts off saying, this is what's talked about, that promise that's talked about of the coming of Holy Spirit. And he also quotes this promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter will now spend the rest of his sermon identifying that name and that person. And so at the very beginning, what's the hope? The hope is call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again and you will be saved. That's the promise. That's it. That's the promise. This is how he starts. Here's this great, glorious promise. God has been talking about this promise for a long time. This isn't something new. This isn't plan B. This is the plan. And here's the way of salvation. He lets it out right out of the bag. I remember when I was being taught how to share the gospel through some of those interesting programs. Uh, They would almost kind of teach you to save this part for the end because this is the closing of the sale. Right? You say this at the end because this is how you close the sale. Get somebody to say the magic word so they can get to heaven. Peter doesn't do that. He starts right off with the promise. Here's the promise. Call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Now, let me tell you about that Lord. Starts with the application first. Starts with the promise first. It's amazing. It's amazing. He starts with the word and just lets the word speak for itself. And then Peter, I think, then continues to exposit this text. So notice this next part. He's now going to give the identity of the Lord and he's going to say this is Jesus, and how is he going to give the evidence that you need to call upon Jesus? Notice what he says. Notice the proofs that are offered. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Kind of interesting. Uh, Jesus was a pretty common name. Actually, it would have been the name Joshua. You might hear some people say Yeshua. It's Joshua, that was his name. He was of Nazareth. They didn't have last names, and so often how you identified them was by their dad's name or where they were from. Where's Jesus from? He's from Nazareth. So what's so unique about this one from Nazareth? What's so unique about him? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. You see that? What's unique about this Jesus? God proved... That Jesus was the Messiah. God's the one that declares this. So it's the giving of God's promise, and it's the giving of God's proof. And how does he prove that Jesus is the Messiah? God attests through what? Mighty works, wonders, and signs. Kind of an interesting phrase here. Works, wonders, and signs. Works and, and these wonders speak of something that only God can do. Uh, and and do it in a way that only God can do it. I'm convinced that a miracle is something that when somebody saw it, they would say that has to be only through the direct agency of God. That's the only way that can happen. It can't happen naturally. There's no natural explanation. It's something that is directly happening once in a lifetime, thing where God is directly intervening into life. Right, that, that's that's what makes it wonderful. That's what makes it awe-inspiring. That's what makes it God's work. But then notice this next that next word. It's and signs. The word for signs mean that it's pointing to something, wanting to prove something. So what is God? What did God do during the life of Christ? He, he he worked through Christ. Christ did these wonderful, mighty things that were awe-inspiring to point to who He was. So when we look at the miracles that are recorded for us, and remind you, these are not all of the miracles that Jesus did. These were done not just because Jesus was like a street magician saying, watch this, I can pull a dollar out of a hat. Watch this, I can pull a duck out of my pocket. And people are like, wow, yay. No, he was doing these things specifically to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. And God was doing these things through him to say, I am pleased with this one. This one is the Messiah. This is the one you were looking for. No one else fits this bill. Only Jesus. And those signs were to point to that. When God does miracles, that's what what he does. They're, They're to authenticate a messenger so that you then listen to the message. So notice what he says. He says that God did through him. So, so God the Father was doing this through him. And then you got to love this. In your midst, as you know. I love that. Peter here is not afraid to point out the fact that these people saw Jesus. They saw the wonders. They saw the signs. You, he did this in front of you, around you, you are surrounding him, and you already know what he did. I don't have to sit here and recount every single mural. You know. You know what he did. You saw it. And then notice what he says in verse 23. This Jesus. (laughs) Just Just in case you forgot, right? Just in case you forgot. Which Jesus we're talking about. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says that that Jesus' death on the cross was part of God's plan from eternity past. This wasn't just what he thought was going to happen... He wasn't playing chess with the life of Jesus. This was the definite, certain plan from the foundation of the world that God was orchestrating all events to lead to the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything was culminating to that point. And he was working and moving and causing and leading and all that stuff would come to that moment. Who put Jesus on the cross? Here, Peter says, first, it was God. God the Father. God the Father had this planned. This was his plan. This was plan A. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. The entirety of redemptive history and the history of mankind is leading to this point. And from that point onwards, everything is looking back to that point. This is part of God's sovereign plan. This is how he ordained it. No one could have changed it, right? No one could have disrupted it. God said, this is happening, and it will happen this way. Yesterday, we were in John, and it was that passage, remember, where Jesus says, you're trying to kill me, and they said, no, we're not trying to kill you. Hand us that rock, we need to kill you. You know that one in John 8? It's super funny, uh, how Jesus was nailed them, just perfectly describe them and then there's this then there's this weird phrase and it says and he hid himself and he escaped the temple and we we were kind of musing yesterday uh how do you leave an angry mob that's trying to kill you like how do you just hide yourself well I'll tell you it wasn't his time to die there was nothing they could have done that would have killed Jesus in that moment because it wasn't part of God's predetermined plan it wasn't going to happen. But notice the next part of the verse, because this is important. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So here you have, on the one hand, the sovereign plan of God to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And God allowed, part of his plan, sinful men to do the most heinous act that has ever happened on the face of the planet. The innocent one to die. And Peter points the finger. This is absolutely true. He points the finger and he says, you did this. You killed him. You murdered him. He identifies their sin. He identifies their responsibility. In some sense, couldn't we say that it was Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins and any single one of us who has sinned is Part of those people that have nailed Jesus to the cross? We all are culpable of that one. We did that. Peter's pointing, you did that. So here you have the sovereignty of God, the sinfulness and responsibility of man. Peter just says it right there. He doesn't try to answer the tensions that come from it. That's fair. But then notice in verse 24, Jesus doesn't stay dead. It says, and God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God is the one who caused the resurrection. God was the one who caused Jesus to rise from the dead. What's the proof that Jesus is the Messiah? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. The tomb's empty. So just think about what Peter said here. Could any of us say this to anyone that we're talking to? Yeah, we could. We could easily say Jesus was the Messiah. We know this because of the miracles that are said in the Bible. He died on the cross at the hands of sinful men for the sins of the world. And God rose him from the dead. And if you believe on this one, you shall be saved. Can you say that? Yeah. This is what it takes to be a witness. No magic formula no program, no t shirts. The simple message of the gospel. I think God has ordained the simplicity of the gospel to go throughout the world. And it's this simple message that changes the lives of people all around the world. He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed his method. We may try to augment that message. We might try to augment that message. But this is it. This is this message. We don't change. We keep this message. This is the center message. Now, notice how Peter then continues to argue the resurrection. Because I know how I would argue the resurrection. I would say, well, there's eyewitnesses. I saw him. I did this, this, this. Eyewitness, right? I mean, you would assume Peter, he saw the risen Jesus. And the next thing that he could have easily said was, Jesus rose from the dead because I talked to him. And these guys, we talked to him. We saw him. Go check the tomb. He's not there. But what does Peter do? So interesting. He quotes scripture. He doesn't point to his own experience, though I wouldn't fault him if he did. But I think he goes to something more powerful. He goes to God's word. God's word trumps our experience, it does. And the reality and the truth that's found in God's word is far more powerful than anything that's ever happened to me. So notice he quotes from Psalms, right? So David. And notice the Psalms he quotes. And notice how how David uh, gives this portrayal of the Messiah. It says, I saw the Lord. Always before me, and he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made me know the paths of life, and you make me full of gladness with your presence. So notice what notice notice how Peter exposits this text, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In fact, we don't know exactly where Peter was, but it could have been very possible that he's standing on the Temple Mount looking over at David's tomb. He could have been pointing. Look, it's right there. Remember when Herod tried to destroy it and we had that whole letter writing campaign and we stopped everybody? We stopped them from destroying the tomb? It's right there. He's in it. The bones are there. Right there. It's right here with us to this day. So verse 30, notice what he says. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He, being David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. David talked about it. Why is, what's the proof? The proof is David talked about it. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah. And notice... It says he saw and was talking about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see decay. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. We are witnesses of this. David spoke about it. It's true. We, the 11 who are standing here, we are witnesses. See the example of the witness? we also witness the power of the resurrected Christ, don't we? All of us bear those marks of a life changed by the wonderful, marvelous grace of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses and testaments to God's changing power. So verse 33 says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You're seeing this. You see it. He's at the right hand of the Father. And you may say, well, how do you know he's at the right hand of the Father, Peter? What magical lens do you have that you can peer? Ready? David says it. He goes back to the text and proves that Jesus has to be there because the Scripture said it. So notice what he says. He says, for David did not ascend into heaven, a.k.a. his tomb is right there with his bones. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So according to Peter, it's obvious. Jesus had to ascend to the right hand of the Father because David said so. The scriptures said so. Now, I want to remind you, if you were to read the first... Chapter of Acts, Peter saw Jesus float up into the sky. That's pretty remarkable, right? We would all say, well, yeah, no, that, he went up there. Well, I saw him go up there. But to Peter, what, what's the most convincing evidence that he can bring? Well, the scriptures say it. If you may, go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse one. I want to just show you one other apostle what he says. First Corinthians fifteen verse one says, "Now I would remind you, brethren, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you also are being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I received that." Christ Jesus, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He also did it historically, but to Paul's mind, he did it because the Scriptures said it. And then notice what he says, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Friends, do not underestimate the sufficiency of, And the power of the word of God. This book is powerful. This book can do things you can't do. This book will change people's lives in a way that you never will be able to. This book by itself is powerful. Why? Because it's the word of God. And this, these words, these thoughts will change the hearts of people. uh, Peter could have sat here and argued, argued argued, brought philosophical arguments and proved and did all of these things. What did he do? He quoted the text and let them think about it. It's amazing. One time someone asked Martin Luther what he attributes to the great power of the Protestant Reformation. That all these people were, you know, repenting of their sins and they were now, you know, dedicated to the Lord and he he gave the simple answer. He said, I did nothing. I just, I just talked about the word of God and why they slept. God did the work because of the word of God. I, I just let them read the book. I just explained what the book says. We just looked at what the book says. And the word of God did all the work. That example is here. And so notice what he says then in verse Verse 36. By the way, if you, would have, if you would preach a sermon like this in Bible college, you probably would fail uh, because this isn't necessarily the most uh, tight sermon. Uh, and I remember when I was in CEF, and if somebody was to come up and give a presentation like this, I would go, well, you missed uh, this, and you missed that, and you missed this. But notice how he ends. This is kind of an interesting ending. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain... That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the conclusion of his sermon. That's where he leaves them. You, What about the promise? What, what, What are they supposed to do? Well, first, he already said it at the beginning. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. But notice, Peter is not necessarily concerned about some great action or people walking forward, is he? He says, here's the truth. Here's it found in God's word. So now you need to know that he's Lord and Christ. He's God and he's the Messiah. Deal with it. That, that's what it is. I mean, that, that's the way he leaves them. Now, obviously, we're going to look at next week what happens, what these people do. Because uh, just looking at verse 37, it says, now when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. The, the Spirit of God convicted through the, through the word of God, through the preaching of God's word. So obviously, there was something that happened that caused them to say, what do I do? But the point that I want to make this morning is this. And I think it's a simple one. Here's the example of a witness. And what does the witness do? He just testifies to the truth. That's it. Testify to the truth. What truth? The promises that are found in God's word. What truth? The proof that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah from his earthly ministry. What other proof? Well, that portrayal of the Messiah in the Old Testament. That's what Peter did. That's what he did. He said, here he is. You deal with him. You wrestle with these facts. You deal with these facts. Now, this doesn't mean that we are heartless and that we're cold and that we're just fact tellers and we're not empathetic towards people and we're not wanting to answer some of their questions but I fear sometimes we as a church speaking as an American church we're so scared that we're going to come across somebody who's going to ask us a question that we don't know the answer to and that we feel like if I don't have the right answer at the right time they're not going to hear about Jesus adequately they're going to die, they're going to go to hell and it's all my fault No, that is not the case, friends. It is not our responsibility to save people. It is our responsibility to testify to the truth. God saves people. God changes hearts. Now, he will use you. He will use me. He will use us. So, What example can we see here from Peter? We can see that here's Peter. He's a spirit-filled man, spirit-filled believer. There is an opportunity for him to talk about Jesus. And with boldness, he takes advantage of that opportunity, and he talks about Jesus, and he talks about the word. That's what he does. So the example for us is to, one, Be walking by the power of the Spirit. And all of the things that go with that. Spending time in the Word. Spending time in prayer. Praying that God will bring people into our lives that don't know Him. There's a lot. And that God will make it obvious to us the opportunities that are happening. Pretty obvious, by the way. And that the Lord will give us the boldness to take advantage of the opportunities He brings. We don't have to go out looking. They're all around us. We just have to have our eyes open, ready for the opportunity, and boldness to say, this is an opportunity that's brought to me by the Lord, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk about the Bible, and I'm going to talk about Jesus. Let them deal with all the ramifications of that. My responsibility as a witness is to explain and point them back to Jesus. That's, that's our job as a witness. I think that's how we talk about the resurrection. So I pray that the Lord will move in our hearts, work in our, work in our minds, work in our spirits, constantly make us more like Christ, that we will emulate this example of Peter, and that our message, what we're known about, is not our political affiliations, not our stance on social issues, but that the thing that we're known for the most is that we are worshipers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that when people talk about us, the first thing they say is, man, that, that person, they, they talk about Jesus a lot. My challenge is you be that person that when people talk about you say, that person, all they do is talk about Jesus. I think that's what it means for us to be a witness in Astoria, Oregon today. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you've lavished on us and your sovereign work as you intervened in our life. And we pray, Father, that we would seek to honor, glorify you, that we would seek to to boast in in your son, that we would be scriptural, that we would be Savior-focused, and that when people talk about us, the thing that, that, that they would know about us, Father, is that we just love you and that we talk about you all the time. Father, I am so very sorry for the times that I've been distracted by other things, by other, other affections, other, other, other competing things that I guess were okay, but it, it distracted me from the real goal of being a witness. So move in our hearts. Cause us to cause us to see what what this looks like in our lives we just thank you so much for sending your son in your son's name amen so as the